Hey guys, my name is Hasi, and this is my first attempt at a podcast. A little about myself, I'm from Tulsa, Oklahoma, where I graduated from Jenks High School in 2009. I was a part of the Centennial class, uh, and uh, you know I was there from kindergarten to 12th grade, so we called ourselves Jenks Lifers. Now, hometown of Tulsa, uh, it's been in the news quite a bit as of late uh, because President Trump wanted to schedule one of his uh, rallies on the 99th anniversary of the Tulsa race riots in Tulsa. But, you know, the, the crazy thing is, is that I went to school in Tulsa, obviously from Tulsa. I have no recollection of learning about the Tulsa race riots in school. And that really doesn't mean much because I have an awful memory, as my wife would be more than happy to tell you. But I actually texted a couple of my friends and asked them, and I said, hey, do you remember learning anything about this in school? And all of them said no. And it's possible that all of us have bad memories. But the fact of the matter is, is that if we did learn it in school, uh, we obviously didn't take away the lesson of how traumatic and horrible this event was. That if this happened in my backyard and I had no idea about the history of it, uh, then those of you who are outside of Tulsa, uh, the likelihood that you know about the Tulsa race riots is probably not that high either. So that's what I hope to do is cover what happened that causes the aftermath and where we stand today. But before we dive in, we have to set up the backdrop. And that is what Tulsa looked like in the early 1900s. You know, uh, in fact, in the early 1900s, Tulsa was considered the oil capital of the world. Uh, in 1905, Glenpool, uh, right off of Tulsa, was discovered. Uh, and uh, these huge families, the Rockefellers, the Gettys, uh, the Kaiser family, they all made a lot of money off of uh, oil in Tulsa. Uh, in fact, Tulsa had one of the highest per capita net worths in the world. So the early 1900s economically for Tulsa was, was great. Uh, in 1900, there were about uh, 10,000 people in Tulsa. And in a short span of 20 years, that population multiplied by tenfold. Uh, so you had 100,000 people at the end of 1920. With great wealth, with a huge influx of people, there was also a demand for uh, domestic jobs, service jobs, uh, and with opportunities that were, quite frankly, not presented to them elsewhere in the nation, uh, many African Americans moved to Tulsa for a better life. The state of Oklahoma was accepted into the Union in 1907 where literally the first piece of legislation that they passed was called the Coach Law, which made railroad companies create separate coaches for black and white people. Afterwards, a series of laws were passed that further alienated the two communities, resulting in Tulsa essentially being divided by a physical railroad line. Uh, north of the railroad line was North Tulsa, where uh, mostly uh, the black population lived. And south of the rails was uh, South Tulsa, where most of the uh, uh, white people lived. Now, 
the black community of just in Tulsa overall thrived uh, despite segregation and Jim Crow. They uh, took stride in building their community. Uh, blacks weren't able to buy goods from white stores, so they created their own stores. Uh, many uh, wealthy individuals, such as uh, J.B. Stratford and O.W. Gurley, moved to Tulsa and bought lands that were later sold to only black individuals and businesses. Uh, and yeah, you know that uh, J.B. Stratford guy I just mentioned? He was a lawyer, and he was one of the wealthiest men in America in 1921. And O.W. Gurley, he had just resigned from his presidential appointment from President Cleveland to move to Tulsa. With the thriving economy and wealthy blacks helping to bring better opportunities to uh, their uh, to other blacks, Greenwood thrived. And when I say thrived, it flourished. By 1921, it had 10,000 residents, 15 black families that were millionaires, 600 businesses, families that actually had their own private planes, six families that had their own private planes. They also had uh, one of the top, if not the top, black physicians in America, uh, Dr. A.C. Jackson. So this community of this 36 square blocks, it represented hope, opportunity, and success, even with all the racism that was going on. And it's, it's kind of crazy that this this can't seem to be real, that even now, a hundred years later, this was somewhere in my hometown. And this existed a hundred years ago in the South? This community? It's just hard to believe. So now we move forward to the events of that uh, fateful day. Um, it revolves around two individuals. It started off with two individuals, uh, there was a 19-year-old uh, black uh, shoeshiner who went by the name of uh, Dick Rowland, and uh, he could work in downtown Tulsa. He couldn't live there because he was black. And so if he needed to use the restroom because he was in the white part of town, he couldn't go to any restroom. He had to go to the one restroom that was available to him, which was on one of the higher floors of the Drexel building. So he gets in the elevator of the Drexel building, uh, and there's an elevator operator, a 17-year-old uh, white girl uh, by the name of Sarah Page. No one knows exactly w what happened when the elevator doors closed, uh, but what people do know is that when the doors opened up, uh, Sarah shrieked or screamed, and, and uh, people saw dick running away from the elevator building uh and so people immediately went to sarah they asked what happened and the police then came and they asked sarah what happened was she hurt by dick where uh, she repeatedly told the officers no i wasn't hurt i wasn't assaulted my you know they asked her if her clothes were roughed up N none none of that was there uh, what many people say is that the elevator floor wasn't flush uh, with the ground floor so when maybe getting uh, off of the elevator he tripped and then in trying to control himself he ran into Sarah but no no one knows exactly what happened uh, but unfortunately the the damage had already been done the narrative had already been written 
the Tulsa Tribune uh, had already fanned the flames and accused Dick of sexually assaulting Sarah. So the next day, Dick is arrested, and by 4 p.m., a massive crowd of rioters swell in front of the courthouse in which he's housed. Uh, By 8.20, there are 400 rioters demanding the sheriff, uh, Sheriff McCulloch, to give up Dick Rowland. Uh, the sheriff kicks them out of the courthouse and actually disconnects the elevator so they can't reach Dick, who's on the top floor, and then places armed guards on the stairway. At 9.15, Greenwood, the black community, starts to hear false reports that the courthouse is being overrun. So there's about, depending on what source you use, 25 to 75 black men, so let's call it 50, uh, many of which who are World War One veterans, took their weapons and went to the courthouse, and they said, we're not going to let this happen, because they thought, again, that the courthouse was being overrun. So let's take a pause here and you know address some things. One is that some people may think that this is a extreme response, but you have to remember that although at the time Tulsa didn't have any lynchings of a black man, there were lynchings of black people all around Tulsa. In the prior year, a white teenager named Roy Benton robbed and shot a taxi driver in Tulsa. He was arrested, placed in the same courthouse as Dick. The exact same thing happened. A riot formed outside of the courthouse, demanded that the old sheriff give up Roy, which he did. The vigilantes took Roy outside of town, which is now Jenks, and they lynched him. And what did the police do? They're documented as keeping onlookers away and directing traffic. So when the black population of Greenwood heard this a year prior, they were terrified. They thought if this is what they would do to a white man, imagine what they would do to a black person. So this was their response. When the 50 armed black men show up to the courthouse to defend Dick, the sheriff declines their offer and convinces them that he has it handled. So they actually go back to Glenwood. But the crowds swell even bigger. And at this time, the Tulsa Tribune had come out with a newspaper headliner that said, lynch a person of color tonight. And I, I, I changed the title of the article. But you know what I'm saying. So, again, Greenwood residents hear that the courthouse is being overrun. And the 50-year-armed women return to the courthouse, where again they offer the sheriff to help protect Dick. But again, the sheriff declines and convinces them that again he has it under control. They then turn back to their vehicles. But this time, as they're leaving, a white man tries to grab one of the weapons of one of these are armed black men. And in the scuffle, a shot is fired and all hell breaks loose. The 50 uh, black armed men uh, then retreat to Greenwood. They're just simply outnumbered. And as, as they're uh, retreating, a couple of them actually take defensive positions uh, along the way uh, so that they can slow the advancement of the rioters. Uh, Meanwhile, the 
the rioters, uh, the white men back in downtown Tulsa, they actually start breaking into stores and stealing weapons so they can go after the black men. Uh, the deputy who originally tried to protect Dick, yeah, he starts deputizing rioters so that they can legally arrest and kill black people. Uh, so as the rioters start to approach, they start burning buildings that they thought uh, where the uh, black uh, armed men had held defensive positions, and they then just start indiscriminatory burning down buildings. Uh, so now just imagine you have uh, Glenwood starting to catch on fire. Uh, you have a bunch of rioters who are going around killing and arresting innocent people. Uh, women and children, they run out of their homes into the nearby woods. Uh, black people who refused to immediately comply were immediately shot and killed. Uh, those six airplanes that I talked about at the very beginning, uh, while well, they were stolen, uh, people took dynamite into those planes, uh, nitroglycerin, kerosene, and flew over and then dropped it all over the city. So you have an attack on the ground, and you have an attack from the air. Oh, yeah, that prominent doctor, the most prominent black doctor at the time, yeah, he was murdered. So all those beautiful homes, what happened to those? Well, a lot of people from the south side of the rails actually ravaged, ransacked, and stole a lot of the goods of the black community. And you know what the sad thing is, is that, you know, the telephone lines were cut. The telegraph line was cut. The railroad was blocked. There was no help that was coming. And we call this the Tulsa race riot. This wasn't a riot. This was a massacre. A couple hours later, Tulsa officials realized that this had completely gotten out of hand. Uh, they reached out to the National Guard, which showed up 17 hours from when the fighting first started, they came from Oklahoma City. But it was too late. The damage was done. The 10,000 residents, 90% of them had become homeless. All businesses were destroyed. Schools, churches, nothing was spared. Uh, the National Guard came in and detained all the black people that they could find and uh, put them in the local fairground. And uh, they did take away the weapons of the rioters, uh, who subsequently went back to their homes. So we now have 6,000 people who were arrested, uh, all black, and what we find later, hundreds killed. So those iconic 36 blocks that once represented hope and success, they had been completely and utterly destroyed. A couple days passed, and white business owners realized that they needed their black employees and request that they get released. When released, they had to wear a green tag that was signed by their employers. And if they didn't wear a green tag and they were caught without their green tag, they would be arrested on spot. And I encourage you to go look at the pictures of these green tags. They're massive. And they remind me of another historical event in time that would happen 20 years down the road. So the only way that a black person could be released is if a white person vouched for them. If not, tough luck, Chuck. Some people spent their winters in that detainment camp. Remember that this massacre occurred in May. So when the re residents eventually returned to their homes, they lived in tents. 
And the city of Tulsa really didn't do much. In fact, the Red Cross became the unsung hero in all of this. The local leadership in Tulsa was so embarrassed by all this, they created this uh, phony reconstruction commission uh, where they gave the illusion that they were trying to help. Uh, but they helped by preventing people from outside of Oklahoma financially helping to rebuild because they said, oh, we could take care of this ourselves, which one of the ways that they helped recommended uh, a new city ordinance ordinance that uh, said all buildings must be built with fireproof bricks. But then subsequently, they went to the manufacturers of those fireproof brick businesses and uh, told them to not sell it to black people. Fortunately, there was a black lawyer named B.C. Franklin in his firm that was in a tent, challenged these ordinances that went all the way to the Oklahoma Supreme Court where they were struck down. It was later revealed that Tulsa wanted to buy the land at a reduced price and then auction it off. So all those homes and businesses that were burnt down, they had insurance, right? No. They had insurance, but it was quickly added as an amendment afterward in the policy that if the damage was done in a riot, the insurance coverage would not cover the loss of the property. Tulsa did, however, uh, get together a grand jury uh, to try to get justice, and they did indict 20 people, but all 20 of those people were black. So what? What happened to Dick? What, what happened to Sarah? Well, Sarah refused to testify against him. So he was exonerated, and he immediately left town. And there's not much written about Sarah Page afterwards. What's interesting is that that newspaper that was article that was written by the Tulsa Tribune uh, that called for uh, the lynching of a person of color tonight, that newspaper is effectively erased. From history, There is no copy of that particular article. The closest thing that there is to a copy is not of the article, but of the newspaper from that day. And if you look into the archives, what you see is actually the cover page of that newspaper actually has a piece that has been clipped out. And that is what first hand sources say is where the actual article was written so if you believe them the article that got so many people riled up was cut out of the newspaper and destroyed or is missing to time uh there there, there was a cover-up element now to what degree we're not sure the fact that our education system until 2020 it literally was uh, introduced into our curriculum in Tulsa in 2020, uh, nearly 100 years after uh, the massacre happened, uh, meant that there, there was some failure at some level to recognize the significance of this horrible event to, in our history. Uh, after the massacre, Greenwood, it, it slowly rebuilt, and uh, it, it did see another heyday in the 30s and 40s, but it, it honestly did did not recover. I mean, there were so many people who left, uh, uh, a lot of wealthy individuals who, if they survived, they did not return. Uh, and 
you know, in the 1960s, the the government built I-44, and uh, it went straight through the middle of Greenwood, and that was the final nail in the coffin. Uh, and of course, this is when you also start to have desegregation. So black people can buy stuff from white stores. And so that was an additional economic pressure on uh, the stores in the area. So that coupled with I-44, uh, that really uh, ended Greenwood. To this day, no one really knows how many people died. General consensus is that around 300 people died. No one knows where the bodies are because, remember, uh, 6,000 black people were arrested uh, when the National Guard came in. And uh, so when these people were detained, uh, they had no idea where their loved ones were being buried uh, or where their loved ones' bodies were. So you have these mass graves. You have these unmarked graves. No one really knows uh, where these bodies are. And uh, Tulsa, for the most part, has kept quiet on this uh, issue uh, for the last hundred years. Uh, actually, until recently, it made it a part of Tulsa historical uh, curriculum uh, to learn about this event. Prior to that, it wasn't a part of the curriculum, which makes sense as to why me and my friends didn't learn about it. Uh, because, as again all in efforts to erase it from our history. Uh, unfortunately, things like this, as hateful and spiteful and, and hurtful as this event was, we, we need to know that it happened. We also need to celebrate the massive success that Greenwood was. I mean, the small area had 15 millionaires. It had six private planes. I mean, it... Uh, it was crazy. I mean, some of the statistics showed that it was one of the highest income areas in the nation. And it was tragically torn down in 17 hours. We do need to make every effort to identify where uh, the final resting places of a lot of these folks are. And uh, in fact, uh, Desmond Tutu actually came to Tulsa. And he said, man, you guys really need to figure out what happened here. Because when you do make that acknowledgement as to uh, this is where people were killed, we put them in the right resting spots, then you can actually start the healing process. Because I tell you this for a fact, ignoring it, not teaching it in our curriculums, clipping it out of our newspapers does not help healing at all. And in light of everything that's going on today, especially about racism and injustice. This is where the president wanted to host his first re-election rally on the 99th anniversary of the Greenwood Massacre. Great. And yes, that great used as an adjective was intentional. I don't know what justice looks like, but I do know this. It is not the act of remaining silent. It is not hiding from our history books. Because that is the only way we move forward. It is looking to our past and realizing the mistakes that we had committed. Because we must always remember that injustice plus time does not equal justice. Thank you guys for listening to my first podcast. And please sh share this uh, knowledge with others.
I love you guys. Please stay safe and healthy, and I'll talk to you all soon. Thanks. Bye. A quick update. Uh, what we have found recently, or what the city of Tulsa has found, is that uh, they actually had commissioned uh, a couple archaeologists to uh, try to identify where these mass uh, graves could be. Uh, in the process of doing interviews, they had found an individual, uh, a white man, uh, who said that when he was a little boy, he remembers that this particular part of town, uh, people were dumping black bodies. Uh, so uh, with that knowledge, uh, Tulsa had commissioned archaeologists to use non-invasive methods uh, to identify or try to see if they could find whether in fact this is an area that looks out of the ordinary by looking at soil samples and in fact that's what they found is that there are three areas uh, two to three areas one ironically in a cemetery uh, where from the soil samples and other archaeological methods that they believe where the mass bodies have had been dumped uh, so Tulsa is now looking forward at what to do for next steps. I believe that that also includes uh, possibly uh, exhuming the area and uh, hopefully giving uh, these people who are tragically killed uh, a rightful uh, funeral. Uh, because remember, uh, funerals were banned when this happened, so they were not given a proper send-off. Obviously, they, they were murdered. Uh, so... This is all very important for healing, as previously mentioned, uh, but I did want to provide that update. Thanks.